Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel of New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm speaking with Gabriela Janaki, author of Archive Everything, Mapping the Everyday, published by MIT Press in September 2023. Archive Everything traces the evolution of the archive into the apparatus through which we map the everyday. The archive, traditionally a body of documents or a site for the preservation of documents, changed over the centuries to encompass, often concurrently, a broad but interrelated number of practices not traditionally considered archival. Archives now consist of not only documents and sites, but also artworks, installations, museums, social media platforms, and mediated and mixed reality environments. Gabriela Janaki is Professor of Performance and New Media and Director of the Center for Intermedia at the University of Exeter. Gabriela, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, But before, I guess, before we start talking about that book that I just described, would you mind introducing yourself to listeners? I'd love if you could share a bit about where you grew up, uh, what kind of path your education took, and what brought you to the work that you're doing now. Thank you. So, yeah, um, I was born in Turin in Italy, um, where I also grew up and lived until I was in my mid-20s. I lived in front of the Fiat car manufacturing site, and all I could see from my window was the factory, its chimneys pumping out different colored smoke every day, and Fiat cars everywhere. Um, I remember lots of strikes and bringing soup to the workers on foggy nights and um, Everybody around me worked in fiat, except for my parents. Um, I went to local schools. I did a lot of theater, cinema. Those were very politicized days. Um, I swam a lot because that was my way to escape. Um, I studied modern languages at University of Turin and developed a fascination there with aesthetics, theater, and art. And uh, because my mom is German, I also spent all my summers in Hamburg. Uh, where my grandmother lived, and then in London, uh, where I started going from the age of 15 by myself. And so that was my big adventure. Um, And I walked everywhere because I had no money uh, to see all the museums. And uh, so the first time I was 15, um, and that was 45 years ago. And last time I was there seeing the same museums was last week. So my love for for London held it all together, if you like. (laughs) Um, I was then awarded a bursary from Trinity Hall College in Cambridge to do a PhD in drama in the English department on the use of silence in modern European drama. And that's where I kind of uh, discovered the college archives in materials that were not in libraries and um, materials which were handwritten with hand annotations. And um, I started living there uh, and in the library at, at, at Cambridge. Um, then I got a job in theatre studies in Lancaster University and then finally moved to Exeter about 20 years ago. Um, and in the meantime, I kind of developed a fascination with media art. So I'm kind of telling you my whole book from a different angle, but um, and, and started to work on documentation of these art forms together with colleagues in computer science at University of Nottingham and with conservation teams at Lima, which is a new me- media museum in the Netherlands. Um, and that's when I kind of started to explore reenactments as a form of conservation. And because of that, uh, started a collaboration with the archaeologist Michael Shanks at Stanford University and with the Bay Area artist Lynn Hirschman-Leeson 
And both of them inspired me to write out of everything. So I hope I've kind of given you a big picture to come to the focus point of this conversation. Yeah, well, and I love that because I think we can see so much of that come together in this book. And it's really, um, it's kind of inspiring and exciting to think about how um, this like wealth of experiences and interests can actually be brought together in, you know, the scholarship that we do. Uh, so turning to this book, uh, Archive Everything, you start out with a really broad overview of archives through history, looking at what they have been and what they have done across time. Could you explain for listeners how you see the difference between what you've categorized as archives 0.0, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, up to, up to 4.0, um, what some of the things are that we learn about archives by tracing them in these categories across time? So I learned about the possibility of thinking about archives in these terms from the archaeologist Michael Shanks, who I mentioned earlier. He talked about archives 102030 and to show how archives evolved historically. So for him, archives 10 show bureaucracy in the early state, the sort of temple and palace archives, Vatican archives, and archives 2.0 indicate a face of mechanicization and digitization, the kind of archival database, fast using open access, um, see the September 11 um, digital archive, for example, where individuals are both consuming and producing um, knowledge about what happened in the archive. And finally, he talks about archives 3.0, which consists um, of new prosthetic architectures. And that's where we become more creative in the understanding of the archive. Again, as, as a kind of prosthetic, he says, so it's it's something that extends us, augments us into a different realm. Architecture, because we inhabit it, it's immersive. Um, and still archival, though, because it, it, it has sufficient archival qualities, I suppose, um, in in the uh, traditional sense of the term, but also it's generative, so it produces kind of new animated worlds, he says. So when he was writing that, that was 2008, um, and I subsequently decided to expand his framework to include archives um, OO to describe the very early archives which have largely been lost um, and which often focus on a person or community. But to some extent, we st I think we still have all these archives, you know, with the, they haven't completely disappeared. Um, and Archives 4.0 to show how archives operate even more pervasively now than the ones he identified within the Internet of Things, the digital economy, and so on and so forth. So again, I think I don't think these categories exist in isolation. They rather kind of emerge out of each other. Uh, and they collapse into one another, they cohabit. Um, so in other words, archives have become more complex and more multifaceted. And within each archive, like with Russian dolls, you can find other archives. And records have also become more complex. So records nowadays are objects, but also digital entities. They facilitate relational thinking. An object may be an archive. Um, so they exist in isolation as part of databases, networks of information. And I'm a great fan of Susan Britt's work here, who's really crucial in my way of thinking about these things. As she explained in the 50s, how documents are, in fact, interdocuments. Um, and we know from Derrida, again, that archivization produces as much as it records the event. So for me, the archive is not just a site for conservation, uh, but it's also really a site for knowledge production. It's a very live, uh, very active, very unstable entity. Um, 
And I say that in the most positive way I can. Um, and this often, again, occurs through this uh, use of the of what Brick called into documents. So the, to go back to your question, the classification of archives in this way um, that Michael created and I kind of further developed explains how the archive expanded over time to become intrinsically part of the world we live in, um, to form our environment. We can't really disentangle ourselves from the archive anymore, hence the title archive everything or we are being archived by the archiving archive so this is how i saw these terms <laughs> yeah and i really like that you mentioned um the re relationality of of archives and how that has it is obvious and it feels like it's grown across across time that was something um that i was really excited to read and, and think about in this section um and then moving into the subsequent chapters, you use a disciplinary lens for exploring the archive, a different different lens for each of the chapters. And chapter two starts with the lens of archaeology. So here uh, you explore the archive as strata and note some archaeological tools and methods we can use in the archive. Can you explain what an understanding of the archive as archaeological method gives us and how this helps us examine the example that you use here, Lynn Hirschman-Leeson's war project? Yeah, thank you. So Lynn Hirschman-Leeson and Michael Shanks, again, are very at the very heart of the book. So this is a chapter where they kind of come together. Um, I mentioned both of them earlier. So Lynn Hirschman is a Bay Area artist and Michael, again, is an archaeologist. So um, Lynn's war project particularly is suitable for this approach. So it's a project that evolved over time. Um, so it's not an artwork that's kind of fixed in, in time. It started as a series of interviews, in fact, with prominent feminist artists from the 60s and 70s. So Lynn herself, an artist, is interviewing other artists, largely due to the fact that these artists were pretty much invisible at the time, not only because they engage in the very new art forms, very unconventional, nonconformist, feminists, and so indeed also the fact that were women probably contributed to their invisibility. Um, Lynn subsequently decided to create a documentary film using these interviews. So we're talking about um, some 30 years later, she decided to create a film out of them. And um, she also created a bespoke installation um, using these uh, documentary materials so that you would uh, walk into this installation and with a Wii, you would point it to different moments in time and you get some information about what a decade would have looked like from the perspective of, of, of the war project. Um, and finally, she uh, created a generative archive. The idea was that uh, there were new, younger generations of women all around that would uh, really benefit by writing themselves into this archive. Uh, so this was a kind of live archive. And then typically for her, she also added a graphic novel. Um, and finally, uh, less characteristically so, but typical for this project, I would say a curriculum guide. So we have something which is altogether a historic document, a historic record, which is then being re-elaborated very characteristically for this artist in various out outputs that some can continue to grow. Some are more educational and more static and some are very dynamic. Um, finally, she donated everything to Stanford University so that we could also look at all these amazing kind of historical records from a purely archival point of view. Uh, so that's a kind of traditionally constructed archive with finding tools and everything else. 
Um, so Lynn's aim had clearly not only been educational, but also generative in the sense that her work was meant to create legacy and so generate an art history, if you like, of, of all these works by these women. Um, and we can trace all these different narratives by looking at this archive. So by using an archaeological approach, we can literally trace, again, excavate the different layers, the different forms that have come together to shape these different kind of outputs. And the unpacking of these layers makes it possible to look at these materials contextually. So why was this done then? And what, how was it responding to a certain context? And again, relationally, how does this sit with this other thing? You know, how does the fact that one of the artists' work was talked about by Congress, you know, affect the kind of uh, what we remember now and what is in the archive? Uh, so put it again in Brit's words, to see the connections between various interdocuments and understand how they generated each other. And this is where the archaeological uh, method turns turns out to be very useful. And this in turn tells us also more about our times, about you know what, what Michael and I often refer to as a kind of operation of presencing or making present or bringing the past into the present so that we're able to define and redefine ourselves and revisit those materials in that process. So again, archaeology makes it possible for us to do that. It makes it possible not only... To, to kind of look at these materials in a linear, chronological, historical way, but also in, in a deep way, uh, in, a, in a stratigraphic epistemological way. What has come from where? What relates to what? What's the context of what? And as the archive is where our presence, our identity is continuously formed and reformed, we can then use these materials again to understand more about ourselves, more about the now. And that's why I think Lynn was keen for the archive to be, at that point, at least generative. So the archive represents, makes present the past in in the presence where you and I here right now are uh, on, 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 on this program today. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was, I just thought this was such a great example of archival projects and um that are that are generative and i like highlighted that many times <laughs> as i was reading about it um really fantastic and then shifting to the third chapter this is where you use a lens of memory and history how should we dif differentiate memory and history and how have archives functioned as laboratories of memory production and how can we examine the archive as a memory aid in the examples you discuss, such as the Jewish Museum in Berlin or the trails built by the Exeter City Football Club Supporters Trust? Yeah, two really different examples, aren't they? And and sometimes I wonder, why did I put them in the same chapter, on the same book? But let's see if I can unpack that. So arguably memory following the historian Pianora is what we remember, what continues to change, as of course memory processes are not stable and history is a kind of much more problematic and incomplete reconstruction of, of what's no longer. So that's how the Nora uh, kind of Nora points, points it out to us. And this is where archives play this huge role as do memorials and museums, but let's focus on archives. So we carry the task of remembering inducing us to become, as Nora says, the curators or even the historians of our lives. And I think this is why social media are, are so popular nowadays as well. 
Um, we think we can use them to define our identities while they, of course, shape our identities. And that's true for both archives and, and social media, but obviously in different ways. So, but this is what um, I talk about in, in my other book, The Technologies of the Self-Portrait book, which has just come out. Um, but so why the Jewish Museum? So I went there the first time in 2001. It had not yet opened. Um, there was nothing in there. There were no artifacts, just the building. And you had to wear a helmet. And it was just me and my mom and a lot of engineers. And as I walked through it with my mother, I knew nothing about it, but I kept losing my balance. And I could hear the sound of traffic of people. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see anyone. Um, and never more than then, it was apparent what, what Liebeskind's design had been. Um, it was about the voids. It was about was was no longer occupied. It was about the emptiness that that you know created. Bear in mind, I'm half Italian, half German, so historically very responsible for for everything that happened. Um, so archives, I think, also have these essential voids. They have these absences, which must be preserved, remembered. Gaps cannot that cannot be filled. That somehow have to be visible and have to come to mean things. And the archive is where we can be witness to these terrible faults of history. Now, Liebeskind often says his his building is not an archive. Um, so I wasn't intending it in, in that way, but I intended it as an architecture that makes visible what's not there. So many, many communities are no longer visible from archives and other communities are absent from archives. They're not only because they were, again, erased from them, as in the case of um, the Jewish people of Berlin and, and how Liebeskind somehow uh, manifested that in the building, but also because they were never part of them. Some communities have never thought their histories deserved uh, to be archived. And um, when I started to collaborate with the football club in Exeter, this was largely because I was looking for a new communities of users to a trail that put heritage in various places on a map. And I was looking for a community that um, that had no in not, no strong history of going to a museum, let's put it like that, or using archives. And I was told, oh, there's a wonderful football club, which has a very fascinating history. They were the first team to ever play Brazil. Um, they did an amazing trip from Brazil back to UK when the war exploded. Um, and they were on the same boat as Germans and French. And, um, and everybody suddenly became an enemy overnight. And I thought, well, that sounds amazing. So let's look into that and discovered they have this massively rich archive, but they've never catalogued systematically, never digitized, never exhibited, never used in any way. And that there were a lot of people who were great fans of the club, had you know a, a very strong investment because they've been going there since they were children with their families and so on. And um, but the two things had not been brought together. So I, I was able to raise some funding uh, with free heritage lottery uh, grants and work with my PhD student, then William Barrett, who uh, interestingly is an archaeologist by by training. Um, to We started by cataloging and digitizing everything that was there to kind of make visible uh, the the histories of, of of this club. We then created a series of trails because that was the original intention. And these trails showed how embedded that community was in, in Exeter. But it never had formalized that memory. It never had turned that into a history, so to speak. So then we decided to create a museum out of that because we had this massive digital archive. And um, 
you know, Exodus City Council was saying, why don't you make a museum where people can actually also go physically to see these histories? So we created a, we did it the other way around. Instead of starting with the physical and digitizing, we started with the digital and then tried to use the physical objects. So we created a site, which then became a, a Devon museum. Devon is the region here uh, where Exeter is. And um, and then the funder said, well, can't we do a third project and basically create a best practice framework for other sporting heritage clubs, whatever they may be, to create their own archives um, and their own histories and celebrate those with their communities. And all this, and this was the important thing for me, all this was done through co-curation with the volunteer fans of the club. Everything was a product uh, kind of, of something coming bottom up. Um, and everything was decided collectively. I just basically trained and empowered, um, uh, sensitizing this community to the value of its own history and its presence again within history in, in the archive, making it clear to them that their memories played a key role in that. And actually one of our key groups was a group of senior citizens with mild dementia who placed in front of archival materials from uh, very current times would not know or remember, but placed in front of things that happened in the 40s and 50s were absolutely wonderful and remembered everything and were able to really, really contribute to the archives and feel very valuable in doing that. So that then became a really interesting process used by the kind of health, national health service here um, in in uh, various um, homes for, for people with dementia to kind of bring sporting heritage into these homes as a way to begin to remember things that are not problematic, they're not family things, you know, or, or, or things to do with news or wars, but are unproblematic memories from their childhood. So this is how, what, uh, what brought these examples together. Uh, absences from, from archives, which need to be in one way replaced, and, and addressed, but in another way also respected and, and maybe left empty because they simply cannot be filled at this point in time anymore, not with what we would want to fill them with. Well, thank you. That's uh, super thought-provoking and also a reminder of how interdisciplinary archives are, which I know we're talking about through this whole book, but those examples really shine a light on it. Um, so then moving to chapter four, this is where you look at the archive as a space for geography and anthropology by looking at the diasporic archive and the possibilities of hybrid methodologies. Could you explain what the diasporic archive looks like and what kinds of archiving methods are at play in various types of participatory community archiving projects and what kind of impacts these projects can have? Yeah, so I think, I mean, this kind of, you can see how this chapter relates to the previous one. And I think this is a very urgent and very timely question, which several colleagues are also addressing uh, from different disciplines. And when I originally wrote the book in 2016, some of the things that happened, you know, in, in more current times had not yet happened. So I wrote about the operation of transformation discourse within archives and introduced hybrid methodologies, which I thought... Uh, were really important, and these were developed by colleagues based in participatory forms um, of appraisal. And in the book, I talk about diaspora as a kind of mobile category of, of identification, and the context of diaspora 
constitutes what's been described by the anthropologist Brian Axel, um, and I quote him here, is a process productive of disparate temporalities, anterioritys, presence, futurities, displacements, and subjects. And that sentence struck with me, um, this idea of different temporalities, uh, and di di dif different ways of, of presencing, again, to do with anteriorities, futurities, and, and the present itself. So I focus in the arc in, in this chapter a lot on the story of Thomas Allen Harris, um, who I uh, respect highly. Um, he um, in, in write about the kind of multimedia community engagement archival project that he called DDFR, so that's Digital Diaspora Family Reunion which consists of a touring multimedia roadshow. At the time of writing, he was just doing it. Now he's, I think, almost completely completed the project, but uh, it's still growing. Um, and this is an online portal aiming to stimulate a sense of community and an online archive that uses interactive media to inspire African-Americans and citizens in other diasporas to kind of reconsider and above all reevaluate their family history. So it's based around these ideas of family history. Um, I'm really, really, again, fond of him. Incidentally, he's now become a professor in film and media practice and African-American studies at Yale University. And he's, you know, using this method to teach his students, which I think is wonderful that this, this method is, is kind of expanded on. But basically, at the time, he did a kind of wider tour um, uh, across uh, several cities in the United States. And he uh, used almost like a minimal role play. He used um, conservation gloves, you know, to kind of signal that he was handling materials which were of certain importance. And he made calls to communities to kind of come out with any object, anything they may have that had to do with the digital diaspora um, and any associated stories. And so then built over time, uh, through user-generated or user-brought content, uh, primarily photos and videos, but also other things, this massive archive, it, it, while he was touring and gathering the material, uploading them to the portal, and through the portal, establishing a sense of presence of that community. Um, users were, again, encouraged to bring everything they had, you know, photos, video, text, you know, um, and then blogs started at the same time because users also started to self-document. And uh, over time, DDFR became a very large live archive that continued to grow, making public stories that had until that point not really been told in history books, for example, or, or shared in archives, um, or gone outside the privacy of family homes. Um, but uh, it's also an educational program aimed at making these processes, again, as I said, part of how we learn about and possibly change who we are in relation to, to where we come from. So he's using this method with his students, but at the same time, the fact I mentioned it here in the book, you know, and um, and the fact that um, uh, other communities have started to, to kind of gather, bring together and constitute archives from their materials. Um, using these same methods is is uh, very important, I think, for Harris and indeed for myself. So today, DDFR has held over 45 live events in around 30 cities. It's kind of gathered, uh, I think, over 20,000, 25,000 images, produced 75 video modules, 
And it's it's had, and this is where the figures go crazy. You know, it had over 70 million impressions. I mean, that's a massive figure for something that's been put together so recently. Um, and again, like Lynn Hirschman, Neeson's Women Art Revolution, uh, the Digital Diaspora Family Reunion in Trends, it really entails a transformative cultural and political program. It's not only about making visible a particular history or creating an archive about that history, but it's about transforming something through that history. And so insight into these practices allow us um, to attach multiple ontologies, if you like, to, to everyday objects, including objects in the archive, and it makes it possible for us to interpret their use over time and in different places and contexts. So this archive is continuing to change. And generation after generation, we will see what people make of, of these objects. So again, that's um, maybe going back into my previous chapter on memory and history. But I think, you know, obviously the chapters are, are connected. So in this sense, I think future archival objects will have social lives and entailed biographies, you know, and associated narratives. And objects include both objects in the archive, but also archives, again, as objects. Um, and, and these are both social processes. They're each associated with stories told about them, each catalyst for further stories that would help us to capture who we are and how do we make sense of ourselves and what we've done and what we do. And object stories about the, the users and the various intra-documents, if you like, again, associated with them, form these powerful transformative knowledge networks that I think are increasingly important to archives and museums, but also to society at large. And the broad social memory apparatus linking the archive, the library, the museum, the internet, is also the story told or yet untold that we still have to kind of live about the objects and their life and both tangible and, and intangible and what uh, its interpreters say about them and how that again, you know, reflects on our presence, our current times and how that in turn will reflect on future times. So I think, um, yeah, I'm very fond of 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 Harris's strategy. In the meantime, we've seen many other practitioners using these kind of strategies. He was probably one of the first ones to do that. Uh, he was a broadcaster as well before becoming an academic, and I think that probably helped him in in that approach in communicating um, his methods to communities. But I think this kind of um, archive that did never existed before you know, uh, and yet clearly ought to exist uh, is something that's really interesting. And we probably need to ask ourselves the question, how many other archives don't yet exist that we should perhaps start to to, to put together? That's a really great question. And this actually reminds me, I, a friend just sent me a link to an Instagram post for an event like this um, that is happening tomorrow at a Puerto Rican community center near where I live. And more and more of these things are happening now. And it's really exciting to see. Um, yeah, it's that process of identifying that the memories matter and and the process of collecting them for, for meaning to be made of them now and in the future. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I think these things are really important for identity creation, community, uh, creation and 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 maintenance, so to speak, and and for presence, for creating a sense of presence. So it's not just about a sense of place. I think it's also about a sense of presence. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, so then moving on to the fifth chapter of this book, you look at the cabinet of curiosity to discuss process and arrangement, and you explore how curiosity cabinets operate as a media between form and process and set the tone for modern archival art. Could you briefly share what the history of cabinets of curiosity is and how an understanding of that history can help us understand current archival art? Yeah, so the first cabinets um, in the kind of strictest sense of the term appeared in Northern Italy in the 15th century and they were the studioli um, consisted of kind of chambers in, in princely palaces, usually not really exceeding six and a half meters, so they're quite small. Um, but by the mid-16th century, the practice of forming these cabinets had not only spread very widely in Europe among aristocrats, um, church uh, ecclesiastics, you know, military, physicians, lawyers, whatever, um, but it also um, extended uh, size-wise in the sense that people had started to acquire each other's uh, studiolis contents. Um, and these cabinets started to be associated with libraries, with gardens, with anatomical and medical collections, universities, workshops, you know, and become kind of larger and, and larger and featured all sorts of things from natural specimen to fabricated one, unicorns, you know, if there is such a thing, stones of various kinds, paintings. Uh, antiquities, you know, engraved things, uh, primitive weapons, tools, machines, arms, you know, myth and and fact and fiction all, all jungled up. And by the 17th century, hundreds of these collections could be counted all over Europe. So it's almost, again, like kind of social media spreading now, you know, it was a massive thing that um, that people were were doing uh, and by when I say people I don't mean everybody of course it tended to be a certain kind of uh, slice of the population over the death of the owners of these uh, studioli the collections were again acquired or inherited and subsumed often in rare collections so by the 18th and 19th centuries you begin to have these really large cabinets um you know or collections you you could call them maybe um and um and slowly uh they kind of started to move away from private dwellings to what we maybe now call museums um and similar uh, entities and so you begin also to kind of get the difference here or the split between naturalia which started to be relocated to natural history museums and artificialia, or human-made things, which started to go to kind of art galleries and books and other publications into libraries. So these, what were originally these incredibly organic uh, things started to be uh, split and end up in, in different places. But what's really interesting for me and for this book, and I guess hopefully for you, is that archives remained a common feature to all of them. So whereas we broke up knowledge in this way, the archive remained everywhere. So as a kind of trope, um, it, you know, art museums, natural history museums, science museums, they all have archives. And over time, in fact, we know that the archive has become one of the most dynamic parts of those organizations. Um, so artists continue to then explore this trope. You get a lot of artists, and particularly as you get to modern times, but right through history is looking at this and think of Andy Worrell's amazing 1975 time capsules, 
which consisted of 610 standardized size cardboard boxes in which the artist had placed around 200 items per box. He basically had the box under his desk and he would just put in it whatever he decided to following his own archival method, which had been decided by him. And so the boxes contained materials spanning between 1960 and 1987 and were li literally almost like an extension of his drawers in his desk. And so it included dinner invitations, personal correspondence, but also toned nail clippings, you know, unseen artworks, dead bees, you know, all sorts of things, um, cans of soup, <laughs> soiled clothing, you know, and even um, a letter from Alfred Barr turning down his offer to donate one of his shoe drawings to the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which he must have regretted, I suppose, for many years. So the boxes were then opened in 2011. And interestingly, they were opened in a very performative act. So the opening was performative. And that shows already how performative the archive can be, um, and in this case was. And of course, as soon as they opened the boxes, given what he put in them, they realized that most of the content had decayed. Um, and again, shows us how dynamic archives are, how unstable they are. And this had obviously been anticipated by Warhol. It wasn't obviously a coincidence that that had happened. And the time capsule had become a kind of archaeological site uh, with different strata that had become or turned into one another. So the materiality of that was messy. Um, and UK was part of the content that he had clearly anticipated would subsequently be found. Um, so this is then again where, you know, for me, the cabinet of curiosity and this kind of collection of very personal objects, which then migrated into all these other things, including, I think, nowadays social media, remains a really interesting way to understand what archiving was, you know, I kind of originated, um, but also what it still is bottom down in many ways uh, for for some of us or most of us. Yeah, you made a really great comment in this chapter about the connection between creating cabinets of curiosity and like curating our, ourselves and images of ourselves on, on social media. I thought that was yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Um, so then finally, in the, the final chapter, we look at performance studies and the history of science to think about how archives are transmitted through the body. How do artists use the body as an archive and what does an understanding of the archive help us see in this kind of performance work? Yeah, so the last chapter explores the kind of alive archives, so archives which are not only live, so in the sense that they in a sense of the concert or a performance maybe, but they're alive in the sense that they they're they have a living, you know, component. And we've seen from 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 uh, what I was saying before about Andy Warhol that all archives are alive, you know, in, in some way. But um but he but here I wasn't just talking about microorganisms kind of chopping away at the at things. So um I was exploring kind of the work of artists who use embodiment to share their repertoire, for example, of dance history with their audiences, where where the archive is embodied, um, because there's no other way that the movement can be really learned, acquired, transmitted, or or exhibited or passed on. Um, as well as artists who generate what they call semi-living artworks, so works which are uh, kind of alive. Um, and it also looks at how artists have used then the trope of the archive in their work as a kind of ordering system 
looking into the archive as a body or organism or organizing system or archiving archive, as, as I say. And the chapter goes back to Lynn Hirschman-Leeson, where it all started, um, to look at um, one of her works at the time of writing, the 2014 Infinity Engine which uh, was meant to be a film and was an installation that made uh, up a hybrid work exploring the possibilities for evolution now that DNA can be programmed. And the work also looks at regenerative medicine and the 3D printing of body parts. And Lynn went through great lengths to kind of interview various uh, researchers in that field in the U.S., um, and uh, they had arrived at the conclusion that maybe in the future uh, there will be an archive of body parts um, so that one may be literally able to kind of replace uh, part of ourselves uh, when those parts stop working by kind of, you know, raising our arm and picking up uh, a body part from the archive and having that uh, placed within us. Of course, that's still science fiction, but it isn't, isn't it? Because we're already doing um, 3D grafting of skin, for example, and and uh, yeah, medicine is probably much further ahead than I know <laughs> how to tell in, in this interview. But so um, this was, I suppose, to, to show that even at that level, the kind of trope of the archive is still extremely pervasive. And we're thinking about the, the kind of future of medicine still in, in, in archival terms. Thank you. Yeah, this gives us like so many rich things to think about what archives do um, in the world around us. Before we wrap up, I would love if you could share a little bit about what you're working on next, whether you have any new projects that come out of this book or something completely different that you're working on. Yeah, so after Archive Everything, um, my uh, subsequent book um, was Technologies of the Self-Portrait. Um, which explored how different technologies, the mirror, the chisel, photography, video, mobile phone, <laughs> um, frame how we construct ourselves in art. And this process has become increasingly distributed, dispersed, um, part of a kind of broader ecology. And that's what I conclude in the last chapter of that book. And that made me kind of think about the value of ecosystems as sites for self-production, especially now in the time of kind of climate change, how what, what role does, does our ecology, our environment play in self-production? And so I revisited some of the work of Bay Area artists, Helen Mayer Harrison and Newton Harrison, who I met in Lancaster when I was working there as I co-curated an exhibition on, on nature, which included their work. And their work has now been um, donated to Stanford University. So again, uh, I started uh, looking at that and then writing about landscape sites and ecosystems and that kind of how that history changed again how we um how we construct our environment or how we define the environment that 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 we're looking at or that we're in and what role anthropocenic change plays within that context so i read the works by some exciting philosophers like Emanuele Cocha and I started looking at TJ Demos, who's a really interesting curator and colleague, among many, many others. Um, and I went all back to those kind of London museums to look at all the constables and turners and those early landscape artists. And um, and then I went back to Stanford and looked at the kind of Stuart Brand, Buckminster Fuller and Butinsky, who all, by the way, have interesting also archival methodologies as part of their, their work. 
And um, and uh, as I was doing all that, felt that I was working within genres and chronologies and that that wasn't going to be good enough for a book, which was ultimately about land or site or the planet or the earth, however you want to describe it. And so I went back to Michael Shanks, the archaeologist, and said, was he interested in co-authoring this study? And luckily for me, he was. So we're about halfway through that one now. And um, we just started to think about publishers. So that's where we are. Oh, that's exciting. That sounds really, really neat. And I look forward to it. Uh, well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Once again, I've been spe speaking with Gabriella Janaki, author of Archive Everything, Mapping the Everyday, published by MIT Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you're listening to New Books Network.